In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, history tells us that it wasn't until the end of the 18th century that the western side of the world, especially Europe, had encountered one of these little creatures, a duck-billed platypus. Indigenous to Australia, has fur all over its body, webbed feet, it's about the size of a rabbit, and yet it lays eggs. It doesn't fit into any normal category. Kingdom, phylum, all those things we've learned in biology, right? So when the first skin went back uh, to Europe, they awed and were amazed at this creature, even the testimonies that were brought about it by those who had encountered it in Australia. What was it? Was it a mammal? Was it a reptile? It just didn't seem to fit. In fact, it was so bizarre that most Londoners disbelieved its very existence at all. It was only until an entire platypus, a pregnant platypus, was brought back that they could see intact with their own eyes that they began to believe. This only happened because some of the greatest minds at that time refused to accept the evidence that was before them. Before that time, it challenged everything that their categories of how the world operated fit. And now they had new evidence of something that didn't seem to fit at all. And they rejected the verdict that was before them for so long, even though the evidence told them otherwise. In many ways, that is the message of this Easter season that we're in. In many ways, that is what we see here at the end of Luke's gospel uh, that we encounter this morning. Evidence of something that makes no sense as the world understands it. And the results don't just challenge the way that the world thinks and operates, but it challenges us down to this day as followers of Jesus as well. It requires more than just our assent, but it requires our action as well. Take a look, if you would, with me back at that passage in Luke in your Bible or follow along on the screens if you're in person. Let's look at three lessons that arise from the text towards this end. We open to a scene that perhaps is the most understated first half of a verse in Scripture, as they were talking about these things. Well, these things were Mary and the women who had shortly come back in short order within the past week to tell of the empty tomb. Peter and John could corroborate that. They had seen the clothes. They had seen the stone rolled away. They had heard about the angels who stood guard that were there. Add to it, Cleopas and his companion, who on the eve of that first night said they hadn't encountered an empty tomb, but rather they'd encountered our risen Lord on the road to Emmaus, who opened their minds to understand the scripture, and then who broke bread with them that very evening. These are the things that they're discussing. And as the greater body of disciples is gathered, they're processing all of this. They're trying to make sense of it. And amidst the chatter and perhaps even the commotion and confusion of all the accounts swirling around, there appears Jesus. And as Jesus stands in their midst, he first says, peace to you. And their response, as Scripture records, is quite natural. They are startled and frightened by his appearance. And Jesus dispels some of the tension in the room by addressing with a question the doubt and the trouble 
that they feel. Why is this so? Now, let's pause briefly here and scrutinize something evidently obvious here that is a great first reminder for us in Easter tide. Um, it's so obvious that, um, that the disciples weren't expecting to encounter our risen Lord. They weren't really anticipating it. They're trying to make sense of it, um, but their fears and their doubts seem to swirl around that room, and yet in the midst of their fears and their doubts, there Jesus shows up. A miraculous moment unto itself, and a miraculous reminder to us about the results of the resurrection and something to ponder. Because Jesus continues to show up, does he not? He shows up time and time again. It's not a one-time event. Scripture itself records it. He shows up at Pentecost, as promised. He shows up down through Scripture and acts, healing the lame, as we heard this morning, and healing so many who are afflicted. He shows up down through the ages, even off the pages of Scripture in the early centuries of the oppressive Roman emperors. He shows up in what was called the Dark Ages in world history. He shows up in the streets and slums in the 19th century in England. He shows up in the face of world wars. He shows up in the face of fears and doubts, caste systems and cultures. Jesus shows up time and time again. And he shows up in our lives in the midst of our doubts and fears. As we look to him to make sense of our circumstances, our culture, and all that is around us, he shows up. But he often shows up in unexpected ways, maybe in ways we don't even anticipate, maybe even ways that we'd given up on long ago. Finding reconciliation where we thought it had long since been lost with someone else. Showing up in a culture that seems darker by the day, and yet we catch glimmers of what God is doing from time to time. In the midst of it all, Jesus shows up, entering the locked doors of our heads and our hearts at times, and dare I even say it, the locked doors of our churches, so that what we try so hard to maintain and preserve for fear of losing, Jesus shows up and continues to bring forth and show what he is doing. Now, we could end right here. In fact, Luke could have ended his gospel right here, and it would have been the most miraculous punctuation mark in history, that here Jesus shows up to the broader body, and that could have been enough. We'd still be talking about it and preaching it today, but thanks be to God, that's not all that God did. That's not all that Jesus does. The story doesn't end here. In fact, there's more to it, another layer, if you will, back in verse 39 and following, if we look there briefly. In his mercy, Jesus doesn't just show up and dispel their fears, but then he says what? Touch and see. What you see with your eyes, what you're doubting and disbelieving, um, does a spirit have flesh and bones? Do you see who I am? And we can almost envision in our mind's eye as they sheepishly draw near to, to touch his hands and to see his side that Jesus, to dispel all remaining fear, says, do you have anything to eat? Not because he's hungry, but to do away once and for all with this idea that he's some sort of an apparition. And so as he eats in front of them, we can imagine with amazement, as they must have stared at him, wondering as he chewed and swallowed, where would it go? Is it, is it real? Or is this some figment of our imagination? And as they process all of this, as they process all that's going on in front of them, Jesus in his goodness in his mercy towards them and us, reveals something more, something that they had believed 
to the very fiber of their being, but they couldn't connect in their minds, but they were feeling in their heart. Namely, that in this moment, heaven meets earth. Heaven meets earth. And as Jesus stands resurrected, all that they have known through the scriptures about um, this new heavens and new earth that we see later on was very much in the fiber of Jewish culture, that God redeems and would restore. They looked to Isaiah, they looked to other places in the Psalms and in the prophets, that God would set things right. And here's Jesus, who they kind of know, but aren't really sure as evidence of the first fruits of what that will be. And as he stands before them, it's evidence of what God plans to do. Now, in a Western mind, I think this is really difficult for us because as Westerners, when we think about uh, heaven, we put it in tidy terms. Um, When we go to heaven, as though it's somewhere out there somewhere. In fact, if you ask kids or grandkids or kids in your world to just say, point where heaven is, you'll nine times out of ten get what? It's somewhere else. But Jewish thought and the scriptures say the heavens are all around us. And so there's this idea that is latent within scripture that God's going to redeem and renew what he's made. Nowhere from Genesis where he says it's very good, does he ever say, well, I'm going to do away with it all. I need a a reset aside from the Noahic promise and when he does do that. And so we as Christians see the end of the story as revelation, right? When heaven is fused with earth forevermore. But God is in the process of bringing that about from this very moment. And so here's a second really deep lesson that Jesus is showing them. He not only shows up, but he shows them the plan. This is what I purpose to do, to redeem and restore the very face of the earth. And he's the one who brings it. And that's why later Peter and others in Acts say, no other name under heaven and earth can one find salvation because he's the only one that can redeem all of creation. It's not a do-over. It's a redemption plan. And so Jesus shows them in that moment this plan of redemption as they're watching it play out as Jesus stands before them. And he continues to redeem today. He not only shows up, but he shows us the plan as he breaks into our relationships, as he breaks into our cultures, as we find healing and redemption, as we catch glimmers of things being set right, we're reminded that the plan is that he alone can do it. There's no mind, there's no power, there's no government, there's no person on earth who can bring peace or justice or wholeness or strength or redemption. That's Jesus' job. And so if we put anyone else in place of him, we've missed it and we always will. Jesus alone can be Jesus. He alone shows up and shows us the plan. And he shows us that if we would allow him to move and work and heal and redeem and rearrange the furniture in our hearts and lives, he's going to do what he's going to do. In fact, he's going to do it whether we allow him to or not. But it allows our lives to see the fruit of what he wants to do as he's doing that. So as we ponder these things again, the amazing thing is another layer added to Scripture here could have been the end of the story at this moment. We would be in awe. Wow, God gives us the plan and shows up in the midst of the end of the story, and we have a promise of what is to come. But there's a, there's a final twist. In fact, that perhaps the biggest point comes at the end of this lesson, if we look back to it for just a moment, back in verse 44, I believe. I'm off my notes. Yep. Um, And it's there that we catch the final glimpse, that as he opens to them the scriptures, 
in the law and the prophets and in the Psalms, as Scripture tells us, as he pulls together the entire canon of Scripture as they have it, details how this plan is playing out, he then opens their minds to understand in verse 45. How incredible is that? Only God can reveal himself to us in Scripture. That's why so many times, so many people down through the ages will proof text from Scripture. Only God can bring revelation of who he is through Scripture. And so that's why when we go to the Scriptures, we do well to invite the Holy Spirit, as we often do, um, to illumine our hearts. He's the only one that can make sense of the plan. He's given it to us, but it's so grand and so big that we can't really even begin to fathom what it entails apart from his own revelation of himself, which is what the Holy Spirit does for us. And as he does that in this incredible moment, just as he did for Cleopas and his companion on the road to Emmaus, and he's done down through the ages, he gives them this final punchline in verse 48. And you are my witnesses of these things. You see that? He doesn't just passively show up. He doesn't just passively show them the plan and then disappear. But then he shows them that they're part of the plan. They're invited to play a role. That's perhaps the greatest mystery in all of Christendom. Why does God deign to partner with us to do what he wants to do? He doesn't need us. I think perhaps the answer to that question comes in the fact that we're more redeemed and made whole through that process, and he knows that as we participate in what he purposes to do. But as he goes through this, he invites them to do that, and thanks be to God, because the, the rest of history tells us this. The church is birthed in Acts on Pentecost, 3,000 souls. They hold things in common down through the ages, through the offices of bishop, priest, and deacon, all throughout the known world. Everywhere we see, the church is manifest, and we are evidence of that. They did their part. And the question is, will we? Will we do our part in our age and in our generation as well. You see, what we're invited into is something so incredibly miraculous, but it will disrupt our life as a church. In fact, if we took that charge seriously, every church would be full on a Sunday morning. And in fact, it'd be full of really messy people. And that's why it's hard. They don't have the things we have. They may not even think the way that they think we think when they hit the doors or that we think that we think they should think when they hit our doors, right? Whatever that is, we overcomplexify it all the time. And yet, they need the same healing and redemption we need. And God's big enough to do that for them as he does for us. And, and if they would fill and be pulled in from the highways and byways, they would find the wholeness and the redemption that God plans and purposes that for some reason he uses us to be a part of. And that's an incredible and humbling charge. Indeed, as it's been said down through the ages, the church is called to be a hospital for sinners and not a museum for saints. And would that it be so, and would that we take our place. Because in this season, where the darkness of the world and the distraught and discontent place of our culture needs hope, as they look beyond the hope of getting beyond COVID, then they're going to ask the question of, what does it look like? How do I reconnect with my kids that don't know anything other than being indoors for a year? How do I reconnect with coworkers at work again? What is that going to look like? And there stands the church, this body of believers who actually like being together. You like each other. It's evident. And they think, I want some of that. And so God draws them in and then begins a work that begins like it did with all of us in small ways so that he can sort out all the big stuff as he goes, which only he can do. 
And so would that we rise to the occasion and take our place. Because God has not only just revealed to himself, himself to us rather, um, but uh, showed us the plan so that we might take a place. Indeed, that is the call of what it means to be a Christian. And we will look different than the world around us. We should. We should kind of be like the platypuses of the world, shouldn't we? We don't fit. They go to work like we do. They are at the soccer field like we do. They hold hope in the impossible. They believe things that aren't yet to come. They live in reconciliation with one another. They keep short accounts. They find ways to draw others in. They really believe this stuff. And that should indeed be the winsomeness that pulls the world in. But it's something that we can only do through surrender and cooperation. So maybe we, may we be different. May we be directive. And may we be bold. Because this Easter season is one to reinvigorate our hope and our feet to the places where Jesus calls us so that he may continue to show up in the dark places. He may continue to redeem in those corners and households and families and places of culture and that we might bring them in as we take our part as so many faithful saints have done down through the ages. Because God will continue to do it as he reaches into the neighborhoods and into the region around us in the world because Jesus will continue to redeem the face of the earth until he stands upon it once more might we find the hope that comes as we stand with him and continue to partner with him towards that end. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.